I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 50 will be our passage this Lord's Day. If you've been with us in our study, you know that we are now at the point in Luke's Gospel where Jesus and his disciples are now journeying towards Jerusalem. In fact, we'll see in the coming passages that now his his face is set on Jerusalem, for it is there that he will go and do what he has already told his closest followers he's going to do, that he'll be handed over, he'll be delivered into the hands of those who seek to not only arrest him, but to crucify him, and that will indeed happen. But he will be resurrected as well. And so uh, between the events that take place of what Jesus speaks of and now, uh, we still have about 10 chapters to cover, and these chapters basically are the journey of these days as Jesus is making his way towards Jerusalem. And on that journey today, uh, we find both an argument and an accusation as the disciples are arguing amongst themselves about who the greatest is. And then as Jesus rebukes them, they make an accusation about one who is casting out demons in the name of Christ. Uh, two events that, that may seem to be separate, but they very much are connected as we consider them in the context of Luke chapter 9. So we're going to look at verses 46 through 50, and out of reverence for God's word, if you're able, I want to invite you to stand as I read this passage for us this Lord's day. This is what God's word says. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. And he said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he does not follow with us. Jesus said to him, Do not stop him. The one who is not against you is for you. If you would pray with me. Father, as we come to your word this morning, help us to come to your word humbly. And help us, Lord, not to come to your word as those who are proud and arrogant, as those who are self-sufficient and self-promoting, as those who feel that we know better than you, our sovereign. But Lord, help us to come and to humbly submit ourselves to you, to your word, and to your will. Father, we ask these things in the name of Jesus, because as we just sang, Jesus indeed paid it all. And so, Father, because of that great truth, we can come to you now and pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. On March 8th, 1971, an event took place billed as the fight of the century at Madison Square Garden. It involved two boxers who were at that time undefeated. 
Joe Frazier, and a name that's likely very familiar to all of us, being this close to Louisville, Muhammad Ali. Most of you are very aware of Muhammad Ali's legacy, and so it is not surprising to you that he earned the nickname the Louisville Lip, <laughs> because he was very much one who promoted himself. In fact, leading up to this particular fight, uh, this is one excerpt from an article about him. He said this, There seems to be some confusion, and we're going to clear this confusion up on March 8th. We're going to decide once and for all who is king. There's not a man alive who can whoop me. I am too smart. I am too pretty. I am the greatest. I am the king. Well, if you know about the fight of the century, you know that on March 8, 1971, Muhammad Ali was not deemed the greatest. Uh, he lost that fight by unanimous decision. And in that, reminded us of an age-old proverb that pride comes before the fall. Uh, a proverb that actually goes back to the Proverbs and was penned under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by Solomon, who wrote in Proverbs 16, 18, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. You see, this, this idea of self-promotion and self-pride and deeming ourselves to be the greatest at anything, it goes far back beyond athletes, beyond Muhammad Ali. It goes back to the fall. It goes back to the creation account itself and the rebellion against God where someone deems themselves to know better than God, to be better than God, to choose their will over God's will. And it is the battle that we have been fighting ever since. That this battle of pride, this battle of self-promotion. And we see it in today's passage. Now, I'll remind you, at this point in the ministry of Jesus, the disciples and the twelve of the disciples have spent years with Jesus. They have watched the ministry of Jesus. They have participated now in this ministry as Jesus has given them authority to go and to heal the sick and to cast out demons in his name. And yet, even this far in their journey with Jesus, and they are still wrestling with this issue of pride. And so we're going to walk through this passage today because we too wrestle with the issue of pride. And in our pride, we may not know how much we wrestle with it. And I pray the Spirit might reveal that to us today as we walk through this passage. You'll notice before us, both from our sermon reading earlier and from the outline in front of you, that we're going to walk through this passage through the lens of what James says to us about pride in James 4, 6, that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So let's begin with that first point then. Number one, the Lord opposes the proud. Again, as we drop back into Luke 9, we find Luke telling us that an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Now, you can turn ahead in the Gospel of Luke, and you can get towards the end of the Gospel of Luke, and you'll find in Luke 22, verse 24, almost an identical statement. There we read, a dispute arose among them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now, this is not two statements of the same account. These are different accounts. In Luke 24, actually that takes place after the Lord's Supper is instituted, after Jesus says clearly to the disciples what is to come and the sacrifice that will be made, he has instituted a remembrance that would take place 
continuing through today until the culmination of all things in glory of the Lord's Supper, and he is about to go to the cross, and the disciples are arguing over the same thing. Which one of them is the greatest? The very thing we see them arguing at of now when what has happened? Jesus has just spoken to them about his coming death and resurrection. That this seems to be a preoccupation of the disciples. It seems to be an ongoing conversation because these aren't the only two times that we see them discussing this. This comes up to a point that it seems to be kind of this ongoing conversation they were having. Who is the greatest among us? And not just a conversation, a dispute, an argument. And so the first thing we should ask ourselves is, well, the greatest what? (laughs) Uh, What is it that they are arguing about? What is it they're disputing I don't think it is along the same lines as what Muhammad Ali and other athletes have said, that you've got Peter turning to James or John and saying, well, I'm the greatest of the twelve. Well, no, I'm the greatest. Well, I'm the greatest disciple who's ever discipled. I don't think that's necessarily the context of how they're talking about the greatest. I think their conversation about who is the greatest seems to be an issue of prominence and placement. Who is the most prominent among them? I mean, think, for example, we're not so far removed from that event where Jesus, from the hundreds of disciples, he calls out 12. This was a position of prominence. He empowers them particularly as the 12 to be the foundation of the church, built, of course, on the gospel of Jesus. He pulls them aside, and then even from the twelve, we see times, like recently at the Mount of Transfiguration, where from the twelve, he pulls out the three, Peter, James, and John. And so you can imagine then there would be disputes about prominence, as well as placement. That placement regarding what was to come and what they imagined their position to be and what was to come. Because as we have already seen, and as we will continue to see, The apostles at this point, as much as Jesus spoke of his arrest, that betrayal, his crucifixion, his resurrection, the apostles, the twelve at this point, are fixated on the kingdom that they believe Jesus is establishing now. They were looking to the Messiah to establish an earthly kingdom here and now. And that's why when Jesus, for example, says to Peter, who just made the great confession that the events are coming where he's going to be arrested and he's going to die and he's going to be resurrected, that's why Peter says, well, no, that's not how it's supposed to happen. I'm not going to let it happen that way, Jesus, because you're going to reign here and you're going to reign now. And we might suppose that the more Jesus corrects them, the more they would understand this, but it seems they are continually confused about this, even after the resurrection. So you go to the book of Acts. After the resurrection, you have the resurrected Christ interacting with the disciples. Acts chapter 1, verse 6, and their question to him is, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That they are looking to Jesus, even after the resurrection, to restore the kingdom here and now, to reign here and now. And they are seeing themselves as those who will reign with Jesus. And so this argument This dispute would come up between them time and time and time again. And we don't have to speculate this morning what that dispute would have looked like. You can imagine it as 
Peter and James and John, the three, as the other disciples, would continually ask this question of one another that would turn into an argument about who was to be the most important. They did not understand what was to come, and that was clear in the passage we looked at last Lord's Day. You may recall we, we ended in verse 45 with the verse, but they did not understand this saying. Jesus had just said, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And Luke tells us clearly, they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. Well, what does that mean? What Was God concealing it from them? I don't think that's the correct interpretation because it's real clear here that Jesus said, let these words sink into your ears. I don't think Jesus would say, let this sink in, and at the same time say, but I don't want you to understand it. And I think we think that because previously, when they're told about the events to come, they're told not to speak of those things to others. But being told not to speak of those things is very different than not being allowed to even understand what's being said. I think the issue here of confusion and concealment and them not understanding is because their expectations of what Jesus was going to do and the reality of what Jesus was going to do were very different. And that led to great confusion and misunderstanding, just as it does for you and I today. When are the most troubling times for you and I in our faith? It's when Jesus does not do what we expected him to do. It's when our expectation was, God, if you love me, if you truly care for me, that then you would do what I would do if I love someone and I care for them. I would relieve, relieve them of this suffering. I would remove this obstacle. I would bless them in this way. And we build up in our minds this expectation of what Jesus should be doing. And when Jesus does not do that which we expected him to do, it leads us to be very confused as well and to struggle. And I think that's a glimpse of what we're seeing here is that Jesus is speaking of something different than what they expected from Jesus. And rather than humbling themselves under the word of God, which again, what has happened at this point? Jesus has said, listen to me, let these words sink in. What happens at the transfiguration? The father said, this is my son, listen to him. But rather than humble themselves under the word of God, they remain to be diligent in the pursuit of their expectations. And friends, remaining diligent in the pursuit of your expectations will often lead to a very frustrating situation. And I believe that's what we're seeing here. And that's why they're not understanding and they're not perceiving. Even as you continue in verse 45, that's why they're afraid to ask him about this saying, I believe. Because I don't know that they wanted to understand it. They wanted to continue in their expectation of what Jesus would do and what Jesus would be. And this expectation then led them to this conversation, this estimation about which one of them was going to be the greatest. Now, it is very tempting for us. It is very easy for us to come to this passage and come to the end of Luke and to read these things as here's Jesus speaking of his suffering and the betrayal and the arrest and the crucifixion and the resurrection. And then, my goodness, after the institution of the Lord's Supper, speaking these very things. And here's the disciples bickering over which one of them is the greatest. 
and to look at that and to say, well, what is wrong with them? I mean, those goofy disciples, how in the world could this be their kind? What are they thinking? Don't they listen to God? Don't they understand what is coming? But friends, take a moment and consider not the view from the mirror looking, or the window looking out, but the view from the mirror looking in. Because that's what we're to do when we come to the Word of God. But it's a whole lot easier to look out that window and look at everybody else and say, well, why can't they get it? And what's wrong with them? And look at all their issues and look at all their sin. And yet the Word of God is a mirror that asks those things of us about ourselves. And rather than developing in our own minds this lecture that we would have given the disciples and how we would have told them that they they missed it and we would have got it rather than assuming we would have gotten it we need to stop and consider how do we do these exact same things how are we this morning dealing with the temptation of pride and self-preoccupation because that's the issue here Lincoln Duncan says it this way in a commentary on this passage. He says, does, does that not warn you that no one is immune from the temptation of pride and self-preoccupation? If these men could walk with Jesus and still succumb to self-preoccupation and pride, don't think that you can't and don't think that you don't. And so be careful when you find yourself coming to the Word of God and saying to yourself, well, I would never do that. Well, I, yeah, I, I would never do that. Because that, I believe, is an indication that you likely are doing that right now. Because we have this ability to perceive the sin of others while being blind to the sin in our own life. And so God graciously gives us this passage so that we might see this preoccupation, this self-promotion, this, this pride that we have with our own heart because our culture and our world we live in today celebrates this. Well, we celebrate self-promotion. We, we celebrate pride. This is what we look up to. This is what we honor. Now, you go back in history 50 years ago, and Muhammad Ali was a bit of an anomaly in that self-promotion, but, but look at the athletic world today. I mean, if someone tackle somebody. It's like they just got a gold medal in the Olympics. All this self-promotion, all this victory, all this celebration, and we love it. We celebrate it. And it's not just athletes, politicians. So many are drawn to those who promote themselves and have big egos and put others down and have this arrogance and this pride, and we love it. Entertainers, anyone who's a public figure. It draws us in. Why? Because it's the inclination of our heart. It's this pride and self-promotion. It's not just out there. It's in here. It's not just in the end zone. It's at the dinner table. It's our drive to make sure people will know what our voice has to say. It's our drive towards putting out there how important we feel we are, how important what we have to say is. And that's why we are involved in very much these same quarrels and these same disputes. And we need to be reminded, especially in these days, that God indeed opposes the proud. James tells us also, he, he graciously, he 
graciously gives grace to the humble. And that's where we'll go next. Number two in your outline there, the Lord gives grace to the humble. And so we begin by by recognizing this pride and self-promotion in our own hearts. And then we receive this word from God that now once we are moving towards this path to humility, we can receive the grace of God. He gives grace to the humble. Notice here that this dispute arises. Jesus knows what's taking place. And so Luke continues in verse 47 to say, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to him, who said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Now, in this particular passage, it is helpful to know some historical context. I'll read to you from one commentary, but I read this same thing in many, and it was this. Though loved and cherished, a child in Jesus' day was the smallest and the most powerless individual in the Hebrew culture. The Talmud regarded spending time with children to be a waste of time. One rabbi wrote, Morning sleep, midday wine, chattering with children, and tearing in places where men of the common people assemble destroy a man. And so the context and the understanding at this point in the Hebrew culture was until a child came of a certain age, Their place was not with the men and spending time with the men. They offered nothing, and it was seen as very invaluable. And so these men wouldn't have been spending their time pulling children along to their side. And this might help you understand then, or help us understand why in Luke 18, how the disciples respond when Jesus is interacting with a child. And they're basically looking at Jesus saying, well, you're, you're too important. You, you don't have time to deal with this child. And what does Jesus do? Jesus welcomes the child and teaches them about humility through that child, which is exactly what we see him doing here. And so what Jesus essentially does here is understanding that the disciples are talking about greatness. He's now teaching them about humility. And in order that they might recognize their need for humility, he pulls along beside him to be at his side this child that they would have had no regards for prominent or placement of a child. And yet it is the child who is at the side of Jesus. And being at the side of Jesus was the place of prominence and importance. This is what their argument is all about. Which one of us is going to stand beside him in the kingdom? Which one of us is going to reign with him? Which one of us is the most important? I mean, we're all part of the 12, and that's pretty important, but certainly one of us is going to stand beside him. Who's that going to be? Well, here's my credentials. Here's why I think it's going to be. Well, no, here's Well, I brought the most people to him. Yeah, well, he took me up the Mount of Transfiguration. Yeah, but you were sleeping when you were up that. You could just imagine the back and forth, the argument and the divisiveness. And the picture Luke gives us here, and what we get as we read other gospel accounts, is that it's not that Jesus is a part of this conversation. It seems that Jesus is observing from a distance this conversation, but he knows exactly what they're discussing. And so the way he rebukes them, the way he teaches and corrects them, is he brings along this child. As the disciples are arguing about who's the closest to Jesus, 
he brings along this child who physically then is the closest to Jesus and teaches them a lesson about humility. He is essentially teaching them and teaching us that we need to abandon our pride and we need to turn from this sense of self-importance and self-promotion that this demand that everyone in the room know who we are and what we have to say, that this idea that, that we are better or greater, and we need to humble ourselves, and in our humility, we need to come to Jesus. And not, here in this passage, come as a child. No, he's saying, look to the child. Look how he received the child. Look at the humility here. And we, too, need to be humble. And friends, this is the consistent message of God's Word. And this is why we need to hear it. Because this is not the inclination of our heart. And God's word corrects our heart. God's word calls us to repent of the desires of our heart, the passions of our heart. And so consider just these passages and what they say about that. Psalm 147, verse 6. The Lord lifts up the humble, and he casts the wicked to the ground. John 4.10, which we've read already, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And again, James 4, 6. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The message from beginning to end in God's word is that we need to abandon our pride and pursue humility. And so the question practically forced in is, how can we pursue humility? How can we grow in humility? And the answer we find is it's not just through abandoning our pride, it is through killing our pride. It is through putting our pride to death, which brings us to that third and final point. We grow in humility by killing pride. Now notice what takes place next. Luke says that in response to this, so that the disciples, the twelve, are arguing about who's the greatest. Jesus knows they're arguing about this. He corrects them by bringing this child to his side and teaching them about their need for humility. And then John responds to Jesus. So this is not some separate account that Luke has placed together as he does in other times, that this is an account that follows and goes along with what just took place. And this is the way that the disciples responded to what Jesus said. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. Now this may seem very peculiar to us that this is how John in particular would respond to what Jesus says to him, especially because the context is Jesus is correcting John and the other disciples. 
but consider how you respond and I respond when we are corrected. And we all do this, but perhaps it's easiest illustrated as we think about others. I can think about a number of times with my children when they were younger and catching one of them doing something wrong or not following an instruction or misbehaving and, and going to them and saying, uh, you did this wrong, this was wrong, and confronting them on that and their response being, well, let me tell you what my sister did. Well, let me tell you what my brother did. And is our response not the same way? If you're married this morning, perhaps you've had that conversation. I'll call it a conversation that makes it sound nicer. And your spouse confronts you on something, calls you out on something. And I understand many of you are so sanctified that your response every time is, Oh, precious spouse, thank you for calling my attention to this. And I'm so thankful and, and I'm so sorry and I, I'm committing to improve. There, there are many of you in this room who probably respond that way. But then there's a few who perhaps when confronted, your response is more like, oh, well, let me talk to you about something you did. Well, well, thank you for pointing out uh, this minor speck in my life. Let me point out the log in your eye. What we see our response to be deflection and defensiveness, and I think that's exactly what's happening here with John. They have been called out. They have been told you are prideful and you need to be humble. And John's response is, Jesus, let's, let's talk about this guy over here. Which, when you, when you consider the narrative here and the timing of this, this likely is an event that took place a, a time before this, not, not even very recently. And John's like, well, you, you know, Jesus, don't forget about this guy over here and what was going on. And then consider the context of when John says this. What has just taken place? <laughs> Jesus, Peter, James and John are at the Mount of Transfiguration. They come down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and then there's a man there with a demon-possessed child who had brought his child to the disciples, and they had been unable to cast the demon out. Now, we don't know exactly when that took place. That could have taken place before Peter, James, and John were up the Mount with Jesus, so they could have been a part of that. could have taken place while they were up there. We don't know the exact timing of this, but the indication is the father brought his child to collectively the twelve the disciples, and collectively the twelve the disciples could not cast out this demon, which we know from our study was an issue on their part of unbelief. I mean, is it not ironic that having just gone through that, that they then would point the finger at someone who was doing what? Casting out demons. Doing the very thing that they were unable to do. But there's something there, isn't there? that rather than deal with the own sin, our own sin and the sin of our heart, we are so quick to look at others and make accusations about them. Particularly in this case, where here's the disciples, the twelve, those closest to Jesus, those arguing about prominence and placement in the kingdom, and they're not able to cast out this demon. And here's this random guy out there. He's not part of the twelve. He might not even be part of the hundreds. He's unnamed and he's a bit obscure. And he's casting out demons in the name of Jesus. He must be doing something shady. I mean, surely he's not actually casting out demons in the name of Jesus. Because we couldn't do it. Surely he can't do it. There's something going on there. We need to call Jesus' attention to this. I tell you, the worst that I see at this 
are ministers of the gospel. I've talked to a number of pastors. I have done this myself at times who are at a point in ministry when things are struggling and they're, they're, they're trying and they're praying and they're walking by faith, but there's, that there's little to no fruit in their ministry. And no one's responding to the gospel. No one's getting baptized. No one's joining the church. And they're persevering and they're, they're pressing on. And then down the street, here's this church that's just exploding at the seams and lots of people are coming and lots of people are getting baptized. And then those little conversations over here, well, you know, you know how he's doing that, right? I mean, yeah, if I, you know, if I preach softball sermons, I get a bunch of people too, you know. Yeah, if I just preach for 30 minutes, I'm sure more people would come. There, there's this pride and this condescension towards those who are experienced what seems to be blessing by those who are struggling. And it's not just ministry, it's in every one of our lives, isn't it? Business, your business is struggling, this one's succeeding, and rather than celebrating that, well, you know why, don't you? They're, they're cheating somewhere. There, there's no way they're making that kind of profit doing things the right way. Surely they're up to something. You know, marriage, family, children, we, we have this inclination to look at others and even successes of others. And then in our pride and in our jealousy to be condescending, to be gossips about these things, to make up things, to slander. I mean, all indications when we look at the other gospel account that includes this story that's recorded in Mark, I think the indications there about what Jesus teaches about those who can actually cast out demons and what's taking place in Mark's gospel you know, it's not super clear, but I would lean towards the indication that this is a faithful follower of Jesus who's heard the gospel, responded to the gospel, and is legitimately casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And primarily, I think that's the case because of how Jesus responds here. He says, they're not against us. He's for you. He's on your side. But they're not going to get there, and we're not going to get there, and we're not going to humble ourselves and hear that prayer from Jesus until we first expose and kill our pride. And we can't kill it until we expose it. And how do we expose pride? We look in the mirror of God's Word. We seek the Lord in this area. We ask Him through the power of the Holy Spirit, to expose this pride in our life. When confronted, rather than responding by our heart's inclination and defensiveness and deflection, we stop and consider, is there truth to this conversation? Is there an issue here? What do I need to repent of? And when we find ourselves looking at the success of others, looking at the blessing of others, looking at whatever it might be that brings out that jealousy and pride in our lives for us rather than looking at them, pointing their finger at them, making all these assumptions about them that we stop and consider, why am I jealous? Why is this disturbing me? Why am I so defensive when confronted? Why am I deflecting here? And as God, through the power of His Spirit, reveals to us this 
pride and exposes this pride, then we can be at the work of killing this pride. And how do we kill the pride? We hold up to that sin, the light and the truth of God's word. For God truly does the work here in that killing of pride and that killing of sin. But it is easier to look out the window than it is to look in the mirror. And so the challenge for us this morning is to look in the mirror and to consider the pride and the jealousy and to hear the word of God. Jesus says here, verse 50, don't stop him. For the one who's not against you is for you. Now, just as an aside, this is one of those passages that I think is often misunderstood and taken out of context so often. I've heard it many times from people who essentially say, uh, you know, there, there should never be an issue of theological disagreement or doctrinal disagreement. It, it doesn't matter what someone believes about the inerrancy of Scripture or the doctrine of Trinity or, or core salvation gospel issues. As long as they are promoting the name of Jesus, they are for us and not against us. And that is exhibit A and taking something out of context. Jesus here is not talking about that. What is the context? Pride and jealousy and confronting those issues. <laughs> That's the context here. The context is not, well, you know, as long as they're promoting the name of Jesus, they're okay. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. But what he's saying here very clearly is, look to your heart, look to your pride, look to your jealousy. And humble yourself. And you do that with killing pride. And friends, we do that fundamentally by getting off the throne of our lives. And bowing our knee to another. Because when we understand truly what the scripture teaches us about ourselves, we understand quickly, we have nothing to be proud of. That is why we do not boast in ourselves. We do not boast in our righteousness. We boast in the gospel and we boast in Christ and Christ alone. Because the gospel tells us plainly and simply that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have nothing to boast about. That the wages of our sin is death. The only thing we might boast about is that we are hell bound and hell deserving. But God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. We did not deserve it. We did not earn it. We will never deserve it. We will never earn it. There is nothing for us to be proud about. And how do we receive that truth and respond to it? Through humility. Through confessing that Jesus is Lord. Through believing that God raised him from the dead. Through humbling ourselves and bowing our knee and confessing Jesus as our Lord and Sovereign. It is only then that we might see the work of killing pride take place. Because it is then that we are given a new heart and a new mind and a new life. That we might, in humility one day, receive glory and exaltation in the kingdom. But it begins with humbling yourself before God. And it begins with getting off the throne. And if you've not done that, then friends, we invite you to do that today as we respond now to God's Word. If you would stand together and pray with me,
as we come now to this time of